Hello, everyone. Happy Monday to you all. It's Monday, January 21st, 2018. This is Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs for one more day. Mike will be back with you tomorrow. I filled in for a couple of days last week while he was traveling with the London Knights. They were in North Bay yesterday, so that's uh, it's quite the trek from North Bay back to London. If you thought it was cold here, it was even colder there. Uh, we got a busy program for you today. We'll be covering the retirement of London Police Chief John Perry in the first half of the program. We'll talk about the prospect of making prepaying and gas pumps mandatory before the hour is out. Next hour, we'll talk to Steve Cordes from Youth Opportunities Unlimited about their downtown project. We'll also talk to Oxfam about their latest income inequality report. And we've got a lot more on the way for you today. Up first... London is in the market for a new police chief. On Friday, police chief John Perry announced that he would be retiring effective June 28th. Perry was hired as Brad Duncan's replacement in 2015. His retirement will put an end to his 33-year career in policing. Perry's had to deal with a lot during his tenure as chief. Soon after he was hired, had to finalize the budget, had a showdown with city council about that, also had to work with the police board uh, to sell a new contract with police officers during his tenure. How police in all cities handle sexual assault cases became an issue following the Globe and Mail's coverage of unfounded cases. Policy on handling those cases has now changed. Carding has become an issue as well. Police have changed their policy on that. So it's been an active couple of years. The last couple of police chiefs in London have been hired from within. There were a couple that happened uh, over 15 years ago now that were hired from outside the service. What's involved in the job? What should London be looking for in a new chief? We'll talk about that with someone who knows the job well. Murray Faulkner is a former London police chief. He joins us now. Thanks for your time today. You're welcome. I was a bit surprised to hear that uh, Chief Perry was uh, retiring. He's uh, had the job since 2015. It's gone by quickly. Uh, it seems like one term is the way we're going lately. Does it have to be, you know, you're, you're hired, and then once your contract is over, that's it? Or uh, Well, I would say it, 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 it's more of a trend in, uh, in recent years. It's not that that is uh, the case in all. Um, as I as, as I look at our friends to the south in the United States, uh, in some municipalities, chiefs of police are appointed by the mayor. And as the mayor gets voted in and out of office, so does the chief of police get in and out of office. Not so in in Ontario specifically, because we have a police services board, and they don't answer directly to uh, to the mayor, although the mayor on many boards, is on the police services board. Uh, But what we see the trend in in Canada happening is that the police services board that hires the police chief, they have a certain shelf life, and that's called uh, municipal elections. And so if there is a change in elected members on the police services board, those people that didn't hire the current chief, there is a desire sometimes to bring in someone else or their own person that reflects uh, the ideology of certain members of a board. So there is a trend that five-year contracts are seem to be the norm and that after five years, there's usually a change in, in the top of a police service. Uh, the other point I will make is that uh, a number of years ago, there was a Ontario court decision uh, which uh, then affected 
the terms of chiefs and deputies. It was commonly held belief that um, that once a chief's contract was up, it was kind of like an automatic renewal unless the chief wanted to leave. And that was then taken to task by, I believe, a deputy chief in Chatham, whose contract was not renewed after the term. Uh, the courts made a decision that there is no um, guarantee that a chief or a deputy chief's contract would be renewed uh, upon the termination of, a, of uh, the time limit. So we now tend to see policing uh, in Ontario that, you know, five-year contracts are basically the norm. I, I guess it kind of gets to what, what the job of chief of police is like and maybe five years you know, is enough. And, you know, if you're, to, if you're going to do another contract, 10 years as police chief, police chief would be, would be quite a lot. Well, I mean, the option would be you, uh, well, for, for, I can just speak for myself. So my five-year contract was up, uh, and I was renewed for an additional uh, 16 to 18 months to carry on an important function that uh, we had started and I wanted to see done. And so the, the agreement with the Police Services Board was, listen, I want to leave. I think change at the top is good for an organization. It's good for uh, development. It's, it's good all around. Uh, but there are certain times where you uh, seek an extension to finish off a major project, and that's what happened to me. So, yes, five-year term seems to be the norm, but you know, there are exceptions to the rule and, you know, an additional one year or two year is not uh, unreasonable as well. What is the job of uh, chief of police like? Well, uh, for a large municipal service in uh, Ontario, I can just say that it is a, a fine balancing act. I mean, what a police services board and what the community wants uh, in a police uh, chief is, I think, the normal honesty, integrity, but, but I go even deeper than that. I'm a firm believer that the chief of police needs to be a great communicator, a great communicator with uh, his internal audience, the police association, the rank and file, a great communicator with the board. Uh, members on the board really don't have a solid idea of what it is to be a police officer, what it is to to command, what it is to uh, lead an organization, a great communicator to City Hall, uh, and of course, a great communicator to the public. Um, it's easy to take credit for good things that happen, but, but when bad things happen, and they will you know, during policing, I honestly believe that the public wants to hear from the chief of police, and that the chief of police, uh, the buck does stop on his or her desk, and that uh, that the chief will state, I will get back to you if I don't have all the facts right away. And a chief should never, never uh, make their mind up about uh, things that happen in a negative way in a 24-hour period. They need to investigate and report back. You talk about when, you know, when bad things happen. I remember during your tenure as chief, there would be times where I'd be calling you three times a week sometimes when, when stuff seemed to be going that way. <laughs> well, uh, I mean, it is a 24-hour, seven days a week job. There is no, there is no time off. You, um, you get calls in the middle of the night. Uh, uh, even in London, as a chief of police, you, one would get a call about a homicide. One would get a call about uh, an SIU investigation. Uh, and so there is no downtime. And, and it's funny, when you see individuals in high-pressure job, when they start the job, uh, if they didn't have gray hair in five years going out, their head uh, is usually covered in gray hair. So uh, there is a lot of pressure 
uh, placed upon uh, chiefs of police. How different is the role of deputy chief compared to chief? Well, I mean, uh, first of all, uh, any chief that has uh, deputy chiefs, one of their major functions is to mentor them so that they could be in a position to take over the leadership role. Uh, the other thing is that uh, as chief, you need to have two competent deputies that that are interchangeable, that can handle the administration side and can handle the operational side. That would that that you know they would they would handle those things uh, in about two year terms, and so they were well benefit to take over if the board selected them. So there's a lot of reasons why uh, major services continue to hire within their own organization. There are times though when uh, you need to go outside of your organization to set a different path or to to increase the services, um, not necessarily accountability, but uh, but going down and improving in situations. We had that uh, when uh, Chief Fantino came. We were solely lacking in some of the modern-day amenities, uh, tactical units, public order units, and some equipment, and, and he really brought us into the uh, modern-day terms of policing. But in general, if a police service cannot generate uh, leadership within their own ranks, then there's something wrong with the organization, I've always said. Uh, Chief Collins, yourself, Chief Duncan, and now Chief Perry, all from within. You just kind of mentioned that within and from outside. Do you think now is one of those times to stay within? or? Well, uh, you know, it... <laughs> Uh, I, I think I think that uh, the London Police have some great senior officers down there, without question. I think the problem will be is that um, uh, you have a relatively uh, new members on the Police Services Board that may not uh, know the depth of their bench strength at the London Police. Um, by moving just just by moving police services board from police headquarters to city hall has stopped the uh, which I believe uh, the relationship building of inspectors and superintendents with the police services board because they no longer go to the meetings it's just chiefs and deputies so um, there is great bench strength down there uh, but we'll have to see in which uh, way the the board goes I, I will say and I'm not just speaking about the London Police Services Board but but we see in policing and more and more uh, board members bringing uh, personal agendas uh, to the to the board and and trying to have those put forward through uh, policies and procedures, and and board members really have to wear the hat of the whole community, not just a specific area. So. Um, uh, there is a great responsibility being a police service board member, and the greatest responsibility is, of course, hiring a chief, I think. I almost wonder if, you know, the police services board maybe makes the recommendation, but they select a different group to do the hiring process or the interview process. Well, you know, most major services use headhunting companies to to gather up um uh, candidates. Uh, I've been involved in, uh, I think, four processes in the province of hiring chiefs. Usually this process is used by smaller organizations where they, they solicit the help of uh, one, two, or three chiefs of police to conduct the interviews while the police services board is present. Um, because not only are you hi- hiring an administrator, you want to hire a a good police officer who understands what it is to work the street, be on the street, know the pressures that that the rank and file are facing, and who other 
to be better doing that than someone that has done all those roles and is now in the command position. And so I've been involved in hiring chiefs of police, have done the interviews, have made a recommendation, and then we leave and let the police service board, who was present during the interviews, make the final decision, because it is up to them. And uh, that process has worked quite well. But I will say that most big services don't do that because uh, many of them feel that they have the skills uh, and uh, and mindset to to make the decision on their own. Marie, I uh, certainly appreciate your time today. Thank you very much. You're welcome, sir. That's former London Police Chief Marie Faulkner. We need to pause. When we return, we'll have more of London Live. This is Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs on Global News Radio 980 CFPL. Welcome back to the program, everyone. This is Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs. I want to continue with our focus on outgoing police chief John Perry and his replacement. It's unknown who that person will be at this point, obviously. Recent history would suggest that Deputy Police Chiefs Daryl Longworth and Steve Williams have the early legs up if they want the job. Conventional wisdom in the past has suggested that the deputy chief in charge of operations, which I believe is uh, Deputy Chief Williams, uh, would uh, be the favored one. But uh, that's putting the cart before the horse, and there'll be plenty of uh, time for that. Uh, When Perry got the job in 2015, he beat out eight other people for the job. So, you know, you only have two deputy chiefs, so there were certainly other candidates in the running there. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean all the other candidates were from outside Uh, the police service, but depending on uh, what sort of qualifications the police service uh, board is going to set, then that could limit how many people from within London uh, police uh, are able to apply. But as we uh, heard from uh, former police chief Murray Faulkner, he certainly seems to think there's a a deep bench here in London. What are the rank and file thinking about this? To talk about that, we're joined by Dave Gilmore, the president of the London Police Association. Thanks for your time today. Yeah, no worries. Uh, were you uh, surprised at all by uh, Chief uh, Perry's retirement? Um, I, I, time's flown for me. I hadn't realized it was 2015 already that he'd been hired. It seemed like it was earlier than that, but uh, uh, seemed like a bit of a surprise for me, but um, I have a different job than you. <laughs> yeah, no, I wasn't surprised. I mean, uh, he's had a uh, really good career and I believe the contract language for most chiefs sign a five-year contract if they have to um, uh, give three years guaranteed, and then after that, they have to give six months' notice if they decide to leave. That's kind of boilerplate. I'm not sure what our chief specific contract stated, but he certainly fulfilled his contractual obligations. London's last four police chiefs, uh, Perry, Duncan, Faulkner, and even Collins, uh, all came from within. Is that something uh, you'd like to see continue uh, with the next police chief? Uh, I think so. Um, I mean, we have a, um, you know, if you look at any type of benchmarking reports, uh, London has a very efficient, effective, low-cost police service of any of the major services in the entire country. I mean, we've had uh, before that two uh, chiefs that came from outside. Uh, Chief Fantino, I think, was a good hire at the time because he um, he modernized the service through the 90s. Uh, then they went outside again with Chief Gramolini, and that obviously didn't work out very well, but... I mean, I think if, you, if there's change needed within the organization, then, you know, by all means, go outside. But, uh, you know, 
if you look at it, really the uh, responsibilities of the police service board are to um, provide adequate and effective police service to the municipality. And their number one um, role is to establish policies for the effective management of the police service while we have a very effective police service. So, you know, I don't know that you can really improve on that. Uh, it depends on, you know, who the person ultimately ends up being. Uh, but sure. I mean, would you be disappointed if they were to hire from without when there doesn't appear to be a real need to uh, shake things up from where they current stand, currently stand? Sure. And I mean, you know, the association is just one aspect of it. I can't speak for, you know, the police services board. They, they're obviously the employer and they have the role to fill. But, you know, I think um, if you have a good thing going, you know, you don't necessarily need to change it. And Sometimes when you bring somebody in from outside, they're unaware of the organizational culture. It takes them a long time to get up to speed. And, you know, I don't think we need that at this point in time. But that being said, I'm just one voice. What sort of uh, qualities do you think makes uh, for a good uh, chief of police? Well, you know, integrity, leadership, um, somebody who's community-minded, and somebody who knows the community and, and works in the community, you know, you, you don't really want to bring somebody into a community that, you know, they don't know the community or what the needs of the community are. And, uh, you know, I think th- those are the big ones. And somebody who obviously has the respect of um, their peers and uh, the people who work for them. I was uh, talking to uh, former uh, police chief uh, Murray Faulkner earlier. He mentioned uh, communication as well with obviously, you know, the police board and city council and the public slash media, but also, uh, you know, you know, the rank and file and all the members of uh, the police service. How do you think uh, Chief Perry has done uh, communication wise and and working with uh, uh, the men and women of the, the London Police Service? Uh, he's done a great job. He's been a, a big advocate for um, the frontline officer. I know um, we did something fairly unique during uh, negotiations in 2015 and bringing in the 12-hour shift plan. And, you know, prior to that, we had a lot of work-life balance issues with officers working 31 weekends a year. And that's not dropped down to every second weekend. So I know there's a lot of appreciation from the members around that. So I think, you know, things like bringing in a, um, a staff psychologist, which was a recommendation from more than a decade ago, and where a lot of large police services are going, it's you know, these are all important things that he's done. And so, yeah. Well, I can imagine, especially, you know, what, you know, police have to deal with on a day-to-day basis. I uh, can, uh, obviously, you know better than I, can get pretty tough at times. And, and mental health, I mean, you guys deal with a lot of mental health calls, but also need to be worrying about the mental health of uh, the police officers themselves. Yeah, you know, organizational stress, vicarious trauma, PTSD, these are all things that, officers deal with on a, on a regular basis. So, you know, when you have a, um, a supportive leadership and a supportive chief, um, you know, it's good to know that you have somebody that's got your back all the time. And, you know, my personal belief is that it should be somebody within this organization. That being said, you know, I don't represent the police services board. Dave, uh, I certainly appreciate your time today. Thank you very much. No worries. You have a great day, Devin. Thank you. That is Dave Gilmore, the president of the London Police Association. Uh, I I should have uh, said it while Dave was on the line as well, but uh, thanks again uh, to the London Police Association for their uh, donation to my Movember uh, campaign uh, last year. It was uh, a huge help, helped us get over the uh, 3,000 mark we were getting, uh, hoping to get to. 
and uh, would not have got there without the uh, London uh, Police Association. And uh, Dave Gilmore was uh, listening to uh, Mike Stubbs on this program back in November and uh, called in with the offer. So I certainly appreciate uh, the money uh, uh, they donated to that campaign. Uh, It's interesting with regards to the uh, search for the next uh, police chief. uh, I obviously have no idea who it would be. If I was going to bet, it would probably be one of uh, the deputy chiefs. And really, if you're going to go outside the police force, What's the reason for that? Maybe there's a good reason and there's a there's a great candidate out there. Maybe there's someone who worked in London previously and now is coming back. I mean, who knows? But really, when you're usually, regardless of the industry, not just police, when you're going from outside in, uh, usually means you're looking to bring something new, a new dynamic that did not already previously exist. And with some of the uh, the changes that uh, Chief Perry has made that have been well-received. I'd be a bit of a surprise if the Police Service Board were to do that, but uh, let's not uh, put the uh, cart before the horse, as I said. Uh, we need to pause. When we come back, we'll have more of London Live. This is Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs on Global News Radio 980 CFPL. This is Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs. Should Ontario make it mandatory to prepay at gas pumps? It's already the law of the land in B.C. and Alberta. And if the Ontario Association of Chiefs of Police get their way, Ontario will soon join them. It went a little under the radar back in December, but the association has called for the province to do something to stop gas and dash thefts with the solution being make it mandatory to prepay at the pumps. It's something that has been discussed on and off before, and really, it's something that's pretty preventable. Gas and dash thefts have been eliminated virtually in Alberta and B.C. To talk about this, we're joined by Joe Couto from the Ontario Association of Chiefs of Police. Thanks for your time today. Thanks for having me. Uh, we don't hear about uh, gash and daf- dash thefts uh, too often, but when we do, it's rarely good. Uh, it seems like there's almost like an increase in some parts of the province as well for them. So uh, going the mandatory route with the, the prepay at the pumps seems like a pretty simple solution. Well, from a crime prevention perspective, it's uh, certainly one that I think the government of Ontario certainly needs to give some serious consideration on because uh, their counterparts in British Columbia and Alberta have, in fact, implemented legislation to make these mandatory and uh, virtually eliminated these uh, types of thefts. So uh, we must have a good discussion about how they could work here in Ontario if uh, if nothing else, obviously, from a crime prevention and uh, and the safety of the employees at these uh, locations. Why do you think it, it hasn't happened uh, yet? I mean, you mentioned Alberta, BC, they've both done it. Uh, Alberta just uh, brought it in last year, and uh, BC's had it for over a decade. Well, I think there's a, obviously a reluctance to... Uh, uh, impose uh, perceived costs on uh, on the businesses that run these uh, uh, these gas stations, and, uh, and we understand that it's obviously it's, it's a business, uh, and the businesses need to be very cognizant of their of their costs and, and whatnot. But uh, there is obviously a a public interest here in ensuring that you protect the workers uh, primarily in in these locations, and I think in the long run. The, uh, the the industry itself is moving towards prepay anyway. It's it's the convenience factor and 
and as well as a safety factor. So I think there's a real appetite now with the current uh, provincial government uh, to work not only with police, but obviously with uh, the convenience store association, for instance, is supporting this. And uh, we, we want to obviously work with the industry um, uh, to ensure that their needs are covered here. And, and as I said, most of the uh, of the industry has already moved in this direction. I think we just need to uh, close the gap so that we don't have these these occurrences, whether they're rare or not. One is too many. Oh, absolutely. Uh, it's and it's too. You know, it's interesting because I, I saw once that that about ninety seven percent of the gas stations in Ontario have this technology. So the technology is available. We know it, it works, and so. Uh, it certainly seems as so as though this is something that's doable in Ontario. It's definitely doable. It's a question of uh, the will for you know the, the remaining. Uh uh, businesses to do that. And uh, we're also very uh, sensitive that, uh, you know, these businesses do re- rely on uh, on people not only gassing up, but also going in and, and buying other products. So I, I think that there's a way that the industry can adapt and, uh, and uh, attract people into uh, their stores, uh, not only when they're paying gas. I know that myself, I've now made it a point that I, I use prepay um, all the time, but I also make it a point to go inside and you know pick up uh, whatever I'd like because it's it's supporting uh, local businesses and local communities. So I think if you if you uh, educate the public, I think they'll appreciate the prepay and uh, and the businesses will benefit in the long run from it. Why make uh, the call now as opposed to uh, sometime in the past? Well, there was uh, a discussion uh, years ago uh, amongst the police chiefs, and uh, there were some concerns at that point whether or not it should, in fact, be police leading uh, the the issue, and that shouldn't it be, um, uh, you know, the, the industry itself and, and really the government. And, and so at the time, we were uh, slightly reluctant to, uh, to be advocating on this issue, so we sort of stood it down, but we can't ignore the numbers, and uh, we've had uh, our members police services uh, who have uh, shown us, um, you know, the numbers as they exist. And, and if nothing else, uh, you know, from a purely operational perspective, we have, for instance, York Regional Police, who over the last two years have seen a 30% increase in, in their uh, occurrences in the region, and it's costing the service itself $600,000 annually uh, with, you know, very little um, in terms of, of criminal charges resulting. In fact, 91% of their cases don't have any criminal charges. So that's $600,000 that could be put back into the police services and the community to actually address some of the, the more high-priority uh, real crime issues. So, you know, we're convinced as the chiefs of police that, that this isn't just a isolated or a one-off, that this is having an impact on our services, and, that, and, and it's obviously having an impact on the communities if our services uh, are not seeing that uh, return on investment. How do you uh, gauge when to, you know, push for something like this and maybe when to pull back, as you were just saying, in terms of when's the right time and, and maybe the wrong time? Well, we always have to gauge uh, the receptiveness uh, at uh, the, at Queen's Park, for instance, in this case. And so um, when we decided to bring this forward to the, the government, uh, we felt that they could understand from a business perspective uh, the, the issues involved. But uh, they're also uh, very cognizant of, of, of public safety issues and ensuring that not only um, uh, the community but workers 
and uh, and our officers are safe out there. And so uh, we, we thought this government uh, would uh, would be receptive to to listening, and, they, and so far they have. They, they've shown a real interest in learning more, um, uh, speaking not only with us but uh, the convenience stores association and, and and some of the industry players to see how collectively we can address what is a public safety issue. And I think that there's a win for everyone here if there's the, the will to do it. And, and I think we're seeing that at Queen's Park on this issue for sure. And uh, we're, we're, quite, um, we're quite pleased so far, I think, with the progress. And uh, I think we're in the phase where government is learning about the issue. And we've encouraged them to talk to Alberta and BC, their counterparts there, and see for themselves. And uh, we all want people to be safe. We all want our police services not to be uh, spending money on things that are not returning an investment for the people of Ontario. So I think there's a there's a there's a synergy uh, there that I think wasn't there perhaps before, um, and it's just a good time to to raise the issue. You touched upon my next question there. It sounds like this has been well received uh, so far since this was put out. It has been. I, I, as I said, uh, I think that there's a receptiveness to, to learn about the issue. Um, and we made it very clear we're not here trying to uh, impact uh, anybody's business. We, you know, we want to listen. We want to be listened to by the, the industry. We want to very much uh, ensure that workers uh, who work in these uh, establishments are protected. I think all of us agree on, on those things. So if, I think if there's that that will amongst all the players, we can make some headway here, and you know, and, and the community ultimately will be the the beneficiaries of it. Joe, I certainly appreciate your time today. Thank you very much. Thank you. That's Joe Kuto from the Ontario Association of Chiefs of Police. We need to pause. We come back. I want to hear from you on this. I want your calls, your takes. You're listening to London Live. This is Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs on 980 CFPL. Devin Peacock in from Mike Stubbs. He'll be back with you uh, tomorrow, taking your calls for a few moments here, just for this segment only. So if you want to give your two thoughts on this subject, you can call in now, 519-643-2222-1866-354-8255 for the phone numbers to call. Talking about whether or not uh, prepaying at the pumps should be mandatory. Just talk to Joe Kuto from the Ontario Association of Chiefs of Police. The association, as you heard, is calling for it. Uh, They believe uh, gas and uh, dash thefts are completely preventable. Last year, Alberta joined BC as the only provinces in the country to make prepaying for gas the law of the land. BC has had their law on the books for over a decade, and it's virtually gone. There aren't a tremendous amount of deaths caused by gas and dash thefts uh, to begin with, but even one is too many. And when it happens, it makes a ton of news for obvious reasons. People should not be risking their lives just to uh, chase down someone who has stolen some gas. You know, you could even have a, you know, we talk about the worst case scenario with death, but you can also have the scenario of someone just getting badly injured in Alberta. One of the, the reasons they decided to go this route was they had some deaths, yes, but they also had some, uh, a number of serious injuries over a three-year period, and, and just one's enough. So should Ontario make prepaying at the pumps 
mandatory. 519-643-2222-1866-354-8255 are the phone numbers to call. We'll take calls for the next five, uh, six minutes or so, then we will be uh, moving on with the program. It's the only time we have for calls today. Prepayment technology already exists at 97% of the gas stations in Ontario. It's not used by all of the owners at all the locations, but it's there if they want to use it. And if it were to be uh, mandatory as legislation from the province, 3% would have, to, would have to add the technology, but the technology by and large is there. Uh, one other item I'll mention before we go to the, to the phones here. If you have filled up at a Husky station recently, you'll be aware that this is their policy already in Ontario. They started it in Ontario in late 2017. Husky Energy said at the time, they believe requiring customers to prepay will minimize risk to gas station staff associated with fuel payments. They do this in uh, Alberta and BC, of course. They also do it in Saskatchewan and Manitoba. Saskatchewan and Manitoba, like Ontario, do not have this legislation, but... Maybe Ontario's uh, turning the curve on this. 519-643-2222-1866-354-8255 are the phone numbers to call if you want to give your two cents. We'll go to Marilyn. Uh, Marilyn, thanks for calling in. Well, thank you. And you know what today is? My 84th birthday. Oh, well, happy birthday. Well, Eddie, pass that on to my good friend, Mike. Anyways, I, it doesn't bother me at all. I get my gas over at Husky just across the way, and I give the um, uh, gas attendant my uh, debit card, and he fills it, fills the uh, tank, and gives it back to me, and I don't even have to get out the car. So it doesn't bother me. It, uh, they've been doing this for some time now. It prevents gas uh, thefts. And I can't blame them one bit. Whether it's mandatory or not, I don't know. Marilyn, I appreciate the call. Thank you, dear. Thank you. Bye-bye. Yeah, I mean, it makes uh, makes sense to me. It's pretty common sense to, uh, I think, to move in this direction. If the province takes the Ontario Association of Chiefs of Police up on this, and I hope they do. I hope they do. Yeah, I mean, uh, Marilyn was just talking about Husky, and one, one of the... The concerns, you know, people would mention in the past when this subject would come up is, well, what about people who maybe are not as, uh, you know, familiar with the technology? What happens about people who like to pay with cash? Like Marilyn is, uh, I think, a perfect example of uh, how easy it works. You don't want to base something off, you know, age, but typically it's people of the older generation who are less likely to adopt something new. I'm certainly that way with other types of, you know, technology or social media. For example, uh, Snapchat. I, uh, I I have Snapchat, but I just, uh, for the life, I, I don't have anyone to use it with and I'm not too worried about it. But, you know, we all have our, you know, our, our, our points where, you know, we just aren't too into a certain type of technology. But uh, for this, I mean, the the, the payment technology, the prepayment technology has been there for a while. You can do it right now if you want. So I think it's a pretty easy route to go. Should they go that route, and I, I and I hope they do. Five one nine six four three twenty two twenty two one eight six six three five four eighty two fifty five are the phone numbers to call. 
the gas and dash thefts are virtually 100% preventable if we were to go this route. As these events continue to increase in frequency, and uh, Joe in the interview was talking about uh, down in York, had a 30% increase over a two-year period. I mean, on the one hand, first and foremost, there's the, the possibility of people just not being injured, people not losing their lives over something like this. But there's also the added benefit of if this results in fewer calls for service, then that's an area where police in every city can not have to worry about, you know, a certain type of crime. One of the, I mean, one of the issues in the past has been, you know, it's, it's been company policy for some of these, for some of these, you know, gas stations to have their employees be responsible, which, you know, if, if you're looking to reduce the, the pressure on them to take a, a risk, you could end that policy. But the technology's there. Let's, uh, let's put it to use and, uh, and not worry about it. We'll take one last call. Uh, Stelia on the line. Uh, thanks for calling in. Yeah, hi there. Um, I just wanted to say that uh, I do appreciate, you know, that there are some people that prefer to pay in cash. Um, but having said that, there's no reason why they can't uh, go up to the attendant first, pay in cash. The attendant just simply authorizes the amount and then the customer gets their gas and they're on their way. Um, I think it's important to have the prepaid system because it does uh, it does prevent the theft and it does uh, keep attendance safe. Yeah, and we, we, we have enough practice in terms of, we've seen how it works in BC and Alberta, and it's pretty common in the United States. Uh, pretty Everyone can get around with it otherwise. I understand people have their habits, but it's, I think, something we can all adapt to. Absolutely. Appreciate Thank the you. call. No problem. Take care. We will uh, take a quick break. When we come back, we'll have more of London Live. This is Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs on 980 CFPL. In the second hour of the program, we'll have a uh, conversation with uh, Steve uh, Cordes uh, from Youth Opportunities Unlimited. What have they been up to the past year? Well, they've been uh, fundraising for their uh, big project uh, downtown. They've already got their uh, their one cornerstone building. And uh, a little while ago, they uh, bought three other buildings uh, and uh, have set an ambitious uh, goal of the amount of money they need to raise with the what for what they want to do there in terms of creating a service hub and affordable housing units uh, for youth. We'll talk about that with Steve. We'll also talk about Oxfam's a new report that came out today, looking at the growing wealth inequality around the globe, but also with a focus on Canada and what Canada could do to address this issue. We'll talk about National Non-Smoking Week with Linda Stobo from the Middlesex London Health Unit. And we will talk to uh, Brent Carr from the uh, Centre for uh, Addiction and Mental Health. Today is Blue Monday, 3rd uh, January of every... Uh, uh, third, the third Monday of every January is Blue Monday. Uh, Blue Monday is made up. It's a myth. Uh, it was a, created by a guy who was working for a uh, travel agency in, in the UK. But it, it remains today, so we'll, uh, we'll talk about 
what we can uh, make of Blue Monday, even though it was made up, it could still have a, a silver lining in terms of a, a benefit for mental health. That and more in the second hour of the program. This is London Live and Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs on 980 CFPL. We are into the second hour of the program. This is Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs. He'll be back in the big chair tomorrow. Years and years ago, when I was uh, taking broadcast journalism at uh, Fanshawe College, I remember doing a documentary, part of which required me to uh, talk to the good people over at Youth Opportunities Unlimited uh, and some of the teens uh, they were helping. It was interesting to watch at the time what they were doing, and it's uh, still the case now. Uh, For over the past year, Youth Opportunities Unlimited has been uh, fundraising so they can move forward with their plan uh, for the downtown, specifically 333 Ridgeman Street, but they've got a couple other buildings as well. So this is like the old uh, GT's uh, building. You may remember they acquired it and uh, two other buildings across uh, from the street from their um, their main building uh, downtown. Uh, the plan is to create a services hub for youth uh, so they could help them with uh, mental health, addiction, employment, and education, or, or better help. But that's what the, the services hub would aim to do. Also looking to create some uh, affordable housing units. This is just phase one of the whole plan. To talk about this, we are joined by Steve Cordes. He's the executive director of you. Uh, thanks for your time today, Steve. Thanks, Devin. Look forward to talking to you. Uh, I'd ask how the fundraising has gone over the past year, but it seems as though uh, so far it's gone pretty well. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, we're in a position to actually do uh, phase one of the project. So, uh, uh, yeah, we'd have to say uh, the community's really embraced uh, the idea of the project for sure. What's involved in phase one? Phase one um, is uh, really looking at uh, the, the built form that's already there. So if you're downtown much and you think about the old building, it has the big Alexander Keith clock hanging on it. Uh, that's phase one, that building that it hangs on to, 333 Richmond. Uh, there's already four apartments in there, so uh, we're thankful to have four residents already in there on the third and the fourth floors. Uh, on floors uh, one and two, uh, we're redeveloping that to as phase one to move youth opportunities unlimited. All of our career services, our employment programs, uh, our administrative team uh, over into the main floor and the second floor of that building. Uh, to start building that hub model and preparing it for the bigger project, Phase 2. And what's involved in Phase 2? Phase 2 is really the one that lights me up and the one that lights all of us up because that's where uh, we really start addressing pretty fundamentally uh, homelessness issues for youth. So uh, Phase 2 is the old GTs and then the section on the immediate north of it. uh, And we're building that up to a total of six floors. Uh, and uh, so at the very corner, it'll be six floors. The middle section will be five, and it'll go down to the original streetscape that's four. And within that new building, the new built there, there'll be 35 apartments for affordable housing with a particular focus on young moms and young families. And then for that hub model uh, are, are some of our partners that offer mental health services, educational programs, uh, addiction services programs uh, would also be in there as a hub. So uh, the the four you that are currently present that would be a total of thirty nine affordable housing units. That's right. For you know affordable housing in general is an issue in the city. For youth, uh, is it even more of a uh, precarious situation? Uh, it is in a lot of ways actually. Uh, number one, uh, some of the people that we're seeing are as young as sixteen years old. 
and uh, so if you're a young person, 16 or 17, you're not even really legally um, um, enforceable on a contract, right? So it's very difficult to get uh, a landlord that will that will rent to you. Uh, and so folks as young as that uh, often find themselves staying in a shelter because uh, permanent housing is not available to them. And if they don't stay in shelter, they're crashing with friends. They have very precarious housing situations. The other part of the population that we're trying to address is um, those young families that are out there. Uh, and these are folks that either um, individually or as a couple, uh, they have a child on the way or they have children already. Safe and affordable housing is almost impossible to find in the city, and it puts a tremendous strain on the family, and sometimes resulting in those families uh, being separated while each one finds access to shelters and crashing with friends and so on. It's terrible. Do we know what percentage of London's homeless population is you know, youth or teens? Um, that's a really good question. Uh, it would be at least a third. Uh, but I don't have an exact uh, number on you because it's such a, a transient number, right? Yeah. Even, even the number of people that uh, are homeless, uh, and uh, there's so many levels to that. Staying with friends where you can stay for a while, but you can't live there. Uh, on over to the other extreme, we see people sleeping on the streets. It can be hard for people of any age to, you know, reach out for help and, and say, you know, I, you know, I, I need something to, to help me along here. Do you find over the years uh, that has become easier for the troubled youth, uh, you know, young families who are, are maybe in a position they could benefit from youth, ser- youth services, they're more comfortable coming to you and saying and looking for help, be it for mental health or education or, or, or anything? They're certainly very comfortable coming to us. We don't always have the solutions or the services, and that's the hardest part. So absolutely, do they feel comfortable coming to us? Yes. And that's part of the value of having that youth-friendly hub, because particularly when they're young parents, uh, they're nervous about systems. Sometimes they, they themselves have an extensive um, involvement with children's, uh, children's uh, aid society. And while the services are tremendously important and valuable and protect young families and young children, uh, young parents are sometimes just afraid of even asking questions that you and I would ask when our kids are young. What about this? What about that? What about that? Young people that are, that are experiencing pretty precarious situations, they're afraid of asking people because they're afraid of being judged. Uh, so sometimes those systems aren't there for them. Mental health supports and addiction supports are very difficult to access because of waiting lists, where they are, how to find them, eligibility. That's why that hub model becomes so important. Um, and we just know that the longer, we know from a statistical point of view, the longer a young person remains homeless, um, if once it crosses 30 days or so, the risk is that that becomes a lifestyle and that becomes very difficult to break out of. And we want to help, help make sure people don't cross that threshold. What makes it so difficult to break out of that, uh, that cycle and that lifestyle? Well, you start uh, attaching yourselves to people around you who are also in that life cycle. So, for example, uh, uh, what often happens, you end up staying in shelter. Uh, you're in a system where, as, as great as the shelter system is, it protects people from virtually living on the streets. But the downside of that uh, is that you're around people that have had that in their lifestyle for many, many years uh, in some cases. So it's very difficult to see yourself in a temporary situation. You're not going to be in again. Uh, and you become 
engaged in, okay, I've got a place to stay tonight. What about tomorrow? Can I come back to the same shelter? What about next week? How do I actually take my focus off that day-to-day survival and sustenance, especially for young pe- young person that has a life to plan? How do I find time and energy and resources and help to get onto a life plan rather than I've got a place to stay again tonight? There was a lot of talk during the uh, municipal election recently from a lot of different candidates, many of whom were elected and even some who were not. Many made it a priority of, you know, helping London's most vulnerable and then that that can spiral into, you know, poverty and then there's different parts of poverty. It's it's such a massive issue, but the the bigger the issue, it, for whatever the issue it seems to be, I, I think it's the, the little solutions here and there combined together as one or ultimately what does it and... I think that's kind of where I, where a lot of people view youth opportunities unlimited just because you're not trying to do too much looking after, you know, a slice of the problem and, and trying to, to trying to solve it. Exactly. Uh, there's a young woman that uh, tells a story. It's on our website, on the YouTube channel. So I'm sharing parts that she would share herself. And that is this young woman spent almost five years um, without an address. So sometimes that meant crashing in shelters, sometimes that meant crashing with friends, sometimes that meant literally living on the streets, almost five years. She found it very difficult to leave this, leave that situation. And really what scared her, she was in her early to mid-20s, and she was thinking that about a third of the people in her situation were finding their way out of that. And the other third, the other two-thirds, one-third is her estimate, were dying and the other third was that was becoming a lifestyle. So I look at somebody like that, and that's just one story, but that's a really profound story. And when you look at that, you think we can do something that actually ends and prevents, hopefully, a generational issue, which was one of the main reasons why we focused on, on that new building, young moms and young families, because we can help end the intergenerational um, homelessness that that young family will experience if we're not careful children get raised in that environment, and it's very hard for them to carve out a new path for themselves. Returning to where we started with with phase one uh, now beginning, how long do you anticipate this to take? Uh, With phase one, that's about a six-month project. So uh, we'll uh, have, um, we just started last week. Uh, So uh, six months from now, seven months from now, uh, we hope to have our offices located over there. And then some of those extra career employment services now uh, in an area where it already has a lot of young people coming and going and living. Phase two is still um, being driven by, by the fundraising success. We've raised 5.4 so far, 5.4 million, which is amazing. Uh, our community ask is 8.2. So I wish that it was all being done at once. I wish that we weren't having to take a phased approach. We're taking a phased approach so that we can start making some success uh, you know, carving up the elephant in, in bits, basically. Uh, but we're really eager to see phase two going because uh, the affordable housing is in dire, dire need right now. $5.4 million in one year is uh, it's pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty amazing. Absolutely. Well, you know what? People can relate to it. And like you said, Devin, you can, it's a sizable chunk. It's also, it's a preventative piece. And I think anybody that sees a young person in their early, in their teens and in their 20s, when their life and their dreams and their excitement for their future should be should be undefined at this point, they should be de- de- defining a big world in front of them. And instead, so many of them have such a such a limited world and limited opportunity. 
and they'll get that sense of excitement that everybody has a right to. Uh, and I think people rally around that and said, okay, I think we can, this is something we can tackle. Steve, I certainly appreciate your time today. Thank you very much. Thanks so much, Devin. Have a great day. You too. Bye-bye. That is uh, Steve uh, Cordes, Executive Director of Youth Opportunities Unlimited. We need to pause when we come back. We'll have more of London Live. This is Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs on 980 CFPL. This is Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs. Oxfam is warning that wealth inequality around the world is out of control. The Anti-Poverty Agency issued the warning ahead of the World Economic Forum's annual gathering of business and political leaders at the Swiss ski resort of Davos. In its latest report urging tax fairness, Oxfam said that the number of billionaires has almost doubled since the financial crisis a decade ago, yet tax rates on the wealthy and corporations have fallen to their lowest levels in decades. Oxfam says billionaire fortunes increased by 12% last year, while the 3.8 billion people who make up the world's poorest half saw their wealth decline by 11%. In Canada, billionaire wealth grew by almost $20 billion between March 2017 and March 2018. Oxfam estimates that would have been enough money to make universal child care affordable and accessible to all Canadian families. To talk about this, we're joined by Lauren Vaughan, Director of Policy and Campaigns for Oxfam Canada. Thanks for your time today. Well, thanks for having me on. Well, I thought the report was an interesting one, especially in the part about the number of billionaires almost doubling since the financial crisis a decade ago. And if we go back to that time, interest rates went down to virtually nothing. That helped the rich more than anyone else, and we're starting to see the results. Yeah, well, what we've seen is that cuts to taxes for the wealthy, cuts to public services, this race to the bottom on wages. All of this has helped the wealthy. It's helped men in particular, and it's hurt women and people living in poverty the most. So today we're seeing that 26 people own as much wealth as the bottom half of humanity. It's just mind-boggling. It's hard to wrap your head around that. Like Last year, the fortunes of the world's billionaires actually grew by over $3 billion every single day. And at the same time, the poorest half of humanity saw their wealth decrease. So this means that people who are living on less than $8 a day are actually getting poorer and billionaires are getting richer. So it's such an obscene level of inequality that it almost takes like a tangible example to, to make this real. That If you're thinking of kind of the people who produce the clothes that we wear, women working in factories in Bangladesh and sweatshops and garment factories, those women would have to work their entire lifetime just to make what the CEO of a big uh, fashion company makes in a couple of days. So this is the kind of level of inequality we're talking about, where we have an economic model that's rewarding wealth instead of hard work. And it really leaves poor people and women trapped at the bottom. You you got into it a little bit there just now, uh, but you mentioned and the report mentions how this is particularly harmful to women. How is that? Um, well, we see that um, societies where there's more economic inequality actually have a greater gap between men and women when it comes to earnings and opportunities. Um, something interesting that our report documents is how our current global economic model is actually built on the millions and millions and millions of hours that women spend working without pay every day. So this is doing things like caring for children, taking care of sick and elderly family members. In some countries, it's 
millions of hours collecting water. And so when we cut taxes to the wealthy, we also have less money to invest in public services. But those services, those things can still need to get done. And it's often women who will pick up the slack and do that work for free. So things like taking care of sick relatives when there's no public health care system or taking care of children when there's no accessible universal child care. These are things that we could decide to be investing on. And instead, we're having women do for free. When we look at something like tax fairness, what is tax fairness? I think it's saying that everyone has to do their part based on what means they have available. And, you know, a lot of people feel worried if we tax more, what will it do to the economy? But many economists think that most countries, including Canada, actually have room to raise taxes on the richest and the largest corporations without harming economic growth. And so we have billionaires like you know, Bill Gates, Warren Buffett, very successful businessmen who have been calling for more taxes for the super rich for years because they see that a more equal society in the long run is better for business and it's better for us all. And we're not talking huge tax increases, but even getting the richest 1% to pay a half a percentage point more taxes, that would be enough to get every single kid in school that right now isn't in school, mostly little girls. And it would also pay for health care to save the lives of over 3 million people every year. So this is a drop in the bucket for the very wealthy, and it means life or death decisions for people living in poverty. When there are calls for you know more taxes on the wealthy and the 1%, we often even hear people who would not be impacted by those changes who, you know, argue against it. Why do you think people sometimes argue against their own economic interests? I guess there's a fear that the that money that's going to be taxed and that taxation money won't be well spent. And so it's true. You need to make sure that when a government is collecting revenue, it's spending it on the right things, the right priorities. And that's why in this in this report we're really laying out a roadmap of where investment should be made. And we think things like education, healthcare, childcare, all of those have huge benefits for society. They have this power to reduce poverty and inequality, and they also help lessen the gap between women and men. So it's really in our collective best interest. It's not only about helping the poorest in our society, but having a more equal society is also a society in which there's less social tension. It's a society where people are healthier um, and there's more social cohesion. Uh, We're seeing that there's such levels of discontent today in so many countries because people feel like they're not getting a fair shake. And greater equality helps create a better sense of cohesion among people. It is interesting because there is such, you know, as you mentioned, just a lot of unrest, a lot of anger around the world. A lot of people recognize, you know, income inequality is part of it. People talk about this. We've been debating about it. Politicians talk about it. But steps to actually address it don't seem to be happening. And if anything, we're exacerbating the problem. Well, So it depends on countries where you look. But yes, generally speaking, inequality is getting worse. And, you know, in Canada, I think a lot of us have often thought that Canada was a more equal society than others. But actually, we're seeing inequality rising here, just as it is elsewhere. And so, you know, last year, the fortunes of Canada's billionaires was growing. It grew by $20 billion. That's a huge amount of money, which in perspective would have been enough to make childcare affordable for every Canadian family. Um, And so... When we're thinking of these levels of inequality, there's money out there to be spent, and yet families are struggling day to day. And what we want to focus on at Oxfam is not so much, you know, 
which country is more unequal, which is more equal, but which countries are really focused on getting the job done, on stopping inequality from getting out of control. And we're seeing that countries that are taking the most steps, um, we've looked at, for example, South Korea. South Korea is ranking towards the top because it has taken steps to tackle inequality. For example, it significantly boosted the minimum wage. It increased taxes on wealthy people and corporations. It expanded social spending. And at the same time, a country like Nigeria that has lots of natural resources is ranked the last in the world because it's worsened its labor rights conditions. It doesn't collect taxes from the wealthy well, and it has very low social spending. So it's not kind of an inevitable situation. It depends on what governments are doing to either make the situation better or worse. What could Canada be doing to address this issue? Well, we have, um, take um, the healthcare system. A lot of people around the world see Canada's healthcare system as a wonderful example, and we're proud of it because we see that it's an equalizer for people. It gives people a fair chance of living healthy lives. And a massive investment in ch- Childcare, universal childcare, accessible childcare for all Canadian families would have in great results in a similar way that our healthcare system has. Um, and it has kind of this triple benefit. It allows children to have the care that they need. It allows women to enter the workforce. So get a job, make an income, save for their retirement, not be stuck at the bottom of the economic ladder. And it also means that more people working, there's more GDP, you have stronger economic growth, which benefits us all. So the childcare example is an interesting one because it's an investment that actually pays for itself in the long run. Lauren, I uh, certainly appreciate your time today. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. That's Lauren Ravone, Director of Policy and Campaigns, For Oxfam Canada, we need to pause. When we return, we'll have more of London Live. This is Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs on 980 CFPL. We're into the final 30 minutes of the show. Thanks for tuning in. This is Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs. As we discussed on the program last week, this is the uh, National Non-Smoking Week. We talked to Rob Cunningham from the Canadian Cancer Society about that. Took a big picture view last week. We'll take more of a local view today in London. We're joined by Linda Stobel from the Middlesex London Health Unit. Thanks for your time today. Thank you so much for having me. This is uh, National Non-Smoking Week this year. The Health Unit is focusing on vaping and marijuana. I can guess why, but why is that the focus for this year? Well, with the legalization of cannabis this past October, we saw this as a, as a nice opportunity to share information so that we're, uh, we want to be certain that people understand that, you know, whether it's smoke from tobacco or smoke from cannabis, smoke is smoke, and that it's important for individuals to reduce their exposure to secondhand smoke, and for those who choose to use cannabis, to be sure that they understand that there are ways that they can reduce their own risk as well as risk to others. It's interesting uh, to hear people when they talk about vaping and marijuana because, uh, you know, uh, vaping is seen as a little bit slightly different than cigarettes. Obviously, people talk often about the, the health benefits of marijuana. So people argue that it's, it's good for you. And it's not that it's, you know, uh, you know, the worst thing in the world. But I think, you know, it's still, as you say, you're inhaling uh, smoke. You're inhaling something into your body. You're inhaling chemicals and something people need to be uh, cognizant of. That's right. They... You know, vaping products are a relatively new product. They've been on the market since um, in, in Canada since about 2010. And so there's a lot that we still need to learn and understand about the long-term health implications from vaping. 
you know, what we do know is that the vapor that is produced from a vaping product can contain toxic chemicals and heavy metals. Um, so even if that vaping device doesn't have nicotine in it or, or doesn't have cannabis in it, it's not just harmless water vapor. And, you know, the, the flavors that are used in vaping products um, also contain many chemicals. And so we have to think about, you know, what kind of chemicals do we want to inhale and breathe into our lungs for long-term use. You know, vaping products definitely are less harmful than tobacco products, um, but less harmful doesn't mean safe. For vaping in particular, there's, there, there's less regulations, too, at this point for some of it, right? Yes, in part, you know, regulations are informed by evidence and informed by science. Um, and so there's a lot of really important research that, you know, our, our scientific institutions and academic institutions are taking on so that they can better understand kind of what those health implications are. The, the current legislation or the, the reason why vaping has been regulated like tobacco use um, and like the smoking of cannabis is that what we do know is that um, vape, you know, we want to promote smoke-free, vape-free living. Kids copy what they see. And so we want to try to prevent young people from starting to use vapor products. If, if you don't smoke, don't vape. And that the use of vapor products by youth and young adults, it significantly increases the risk of then initiating combustible tobacco smoking over time. And so by putting restrictions in place, it's role modeling that smoke-free, vapor-free living. The uh, smoking rate's down to 16%. We're uh, uh, doing better at getting it down. Uh, obviously, uh, more uh, to go. But it's an interesting time where we, uh, where you just legalized marijuana. Vaping's becoming more and more popular. So on the one hand, making progress. But on the other hand, we have these other doors kind of opening that almost counter those efforts. You know, it's important that with the legalization of cannabis, that with that legalization, we need to talk about the importance of strict regulations and rules about the product, rules about how those products are promoted and advertised. Um, we need to put regulations in place so that, you know, we aren't, we, we don't have an advertising world out there that is making false health claims about products that we don't yet know. The, you know, one of the real benefits of the legalization of cannabis is that it's going to enable us to do really good research so that we can understand both the potential health concerns or implications from cannabis use, as well as having a better understanding about the potential therapeutic benefits from cannabis use. When you look at uh, vaping and marijuana, does one concern you more than the other? Um, from a from a cannabis perspective, we are concerned about brain development in youth and young adults. Um, and these concerns are shared also with vaping products. Because of the chemicals that you inhale when you are vaping, they have shown that it can, in fact, alter brain development and it can impact the area of the brain that helps people focus, it, it, the part of the brain that helps people learn. Um, and so we have to be concerned about nicotine and cannabis in vapor products because of that impact on brain development. Vaping with, with the flavors, too, uh, really can appeal to kids. 
Yeah, it's it's interesting that you'll open or, or you'll be walking by and, and you'll get this strong whiff of strawberry muffin or a strong whiff of hubba bubba bubble gum, and it's actually flavor that's coming out of a vaping product. Um, and so for young people that may not understand or, or fully, you know, their brains aren't developed, so they don't fully understand the health implications of what they're choosing to do. What they do know is that they can inhale vapor from a device they get a little bit of a buzz, and it tastes great. It's interesting because, you know, we just had, you know, it wasn't too long ago that there were different flavors available for, you know, cigarettes and cigarellos, and there was an effort to scale that back, and then vaping comes in, and it's kind of almost back to square one. You'd almost rather maybe adopt a current smoking laws as opposed to have to go back to, to square one. The, there are definitely some concerns that we are seeing kind of a reversal in some of the, the long, long years and decades of work that's been done to decrease um, kind of the burden of tobacco within our, our community. Um, and we're now seeing that, you know, there's vaping advertisements everywhere and lots of places where children and youth go, like their local convenience store or when they're with their parents at the grocery store getting gas, you know, they're seeing these large displays and 3D exhibits promoting vaping products. Um, you know, it, it's not to say there are individuals, anecdotally, that have indicated that they've been able to quit smoking using a vapor product. Um, what we're concerned about is that you have young people who aren't addicted that are becoming addicted to nicotine products because they've started vaping. Is there a message you would really like people to take home from uh, this week as we look at National Non-Smoking Week? National Non-Smoking Week is that, you know, annual opportunity for an individual themselves to think about their tobacco use. It's an opportunity for them to think about their cannabis use, um, whether and, and to learn how can they make steps to improve their health, either for themselves or for their loved ones within their family, you know, taking the smoke outside, making sure that you are not promoting tobacco, cannabis, or vaping use in front of your kids, having conversations with your kids about, you know, the realities of, of the addiction of tobacco use and how hard it is to quit, um, to talk about how we can prevent young people from picking up vaping, um, and to think about how can you reduce your risk if you as an adult are choosing to use cannabis, what can you do to lower your risk and to lower the risk that you may be impacting others with. Linda, I certainly appreciate your time today. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. That's Linda Stobo from the Middlesex London Health Unit. If you want more information, you can go to youneedtoknow.ca. That's youneedtoknow.ca. We need to pause. When we come back, we'll have more of London Live. This is Devin Peacock and for Mike Stubbs on 980 CFPL. This is Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs. You know what day today is? It's not your average Monday, or so we're being led to believe. Today is apparently Blue Monday. The third Monday in January is widely referred to as Blue Monday, the day when seasonal affective disorder and general winter blahs may be at their peak. Thing is, Blue Monday's made up. Blue Monday was created in 2005 when a British travel company asked a self-styled psychologist, life coach, and happiness consultant named Cliff Arnold to come up with it for an ad campaign. 
There is no scientific proof that Blue Monday is actually a thing, and yet it persists. Uh, Brent Carr is the manager of community programs with the Center for Addiction and Mental Health in Middlesex. He joins us now. Thanks for your time today. Yeah, no, thanks for having me, Devin. Well, uh, people are becoming uh, wise to the fact, I think, uh, Blue Monday is made up. I guess uh, on the plus side, it does cast a light on mental health, even if it was uh, made up by a travel company uh, almost 15 years ago at this point. So on the one hand, that's not too bad, but still, uh, I do think people should know that this is not actually a thing. Yeah, you know, it's actually interesting. I didn't even know that it was a travel company that had made this up and hadn't even heard about it until uh, a couple years ago myself. And uh, the silver lining, and I think you're alluding to that, Devin, is the fact that uh, it's bringing some awareness at least, and and perhaps uh, as a mental health organization, uh, we can do a good job at maybe capitalizing on that and and bringing the issues forward, uh, that people can struggle with uh, depression, they can feel lonely, they can feel sad, and uh, we can talk about, yeah, the season and and what the effect that uh, winter can have on people. So uh, is a, a seasonal disorder for the winter actually uh, a thing, though? Well, I think there, there's a difference between, yeah, the, the winter blues and um, to be maybe diagnosed with seasonal affective disorder, per se. I think uh, but what it can do in, in terms of winter blues, I think it can create maybe a, a greater sense of empathy, uh, for us all to have that people are out there that, that are, are, are really struggling. Um, you know, seasonal affective disorder affects about 2% of the population, um, and it's serious symptoms. I mean, it's, you know, people can uh, have weight gain, decreased energy, uh, chronic fatigue um, to a significant extent. For for people who may be, you know, suffering from that I feel especially bad just because uh, Blue Monday is not real, and so more the more people you know learn about that, it's okay, it's it's one thing, but that's not to dismiss people who might you know be struggling uh, at this time with you know a specific you know winter seasonal disorder uh, issue. Uh, you know, you know, if regardless of time, people should reach out and talk. But Blue Monday may not be a thing, but people may still be struggling on this day and at this time of year. Yeah, you know, uh, a colleague of mine said something interesting today, though, that uh, perhaps today is a day that for some, and, and they look at uh, maybe maybe it's the middle class uh, that are, are feeling stretched, and it's after the holidays, and uh, it's maybe just to recognize that. And, and for me, it's about everything is relative to us. You know, for, for some, it's after the holidays, and, you know, they're feeling maybe uh, stretched financially, and, and they're going through that right now. For others, it could be the weather that it really, really affects them. And then, yeah, we cannot forget about the people that um, it's not so much the weather. This is just something that they're struggling with. And and we do want to bring awareness to it all, attention to everything. It's interesting how something like, you know, Blue Monday can get out there. And once it's out there, it's, it's hard for it to be completely scrubbed away. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I think, uh, you know, this time next year, we'll, we'll, we'll still be talking about this, and perhaps uh, CMHA will be doing an interview again. But again, uh, the benefit is that we can bring awareness uh, to, to the struggles out there. You think people today are more, uh, have an open mind to mental health struggles uh, than maybe five, ten years ago? I think it's, for me, uh, anecdotally, I think it, it's tracking in the right direction. Um I think, and the, the evidence 
from my own perspective that I would have is, is when um, I, I work in a community wellness department and I work in uh, public education. So a lot of it, what we do is getting the message out there and trying to combat that stigma and, and see if people are willing to reach out for help. And um, some of the, the events and programs and things that we've created, we've had such great participation and engagement. I, I really think that we're, we're moving in the right direction. I don't want this to be to be taken the wrong way, and I'll use myself as the example just to make sure that no one takes it the wrong way. I feel like sometimes uh, we're all uh, hypocrites to a certain extent when we talk when we talk about mental health. And the example I mean is, you know, I, I talk and I, I truly mean it that people, if you're um, you know in need of help and you want to talk to someone, you should reach out and talk to people. But sometimes, even though the message makes sense and we say it to others, you know. I, Internally, I may say, you know what, I just don't want to burden other people with my troubles, and really I should, and, uh, you know, it's so I, I think regardless of what you're dealing with, we should all be, you know, uh, maybe taking our own advice sometimes rather than uh, we, we, we normally do, if that makes any sense. No, no, it does, and, and I'm, I'm glad you actually brought that up because I think that that struggle, that internal struggle is very, very real, is... Uh, it's we can all preach that people need to reach out for help. And then when it comes to affect us and it becomes very, very personal where um, you need to decide if you're ready for that vulnerability of telling your story and letting perhaps maybe a stranger know that, that they don't know you or you're going into a public space to access services. It just, it changes things and you have to be ready for that. And I think the thing I always try to tell people is when you decide to do that, you're, you're not weak. It's like this incredible strength that you've decided to put that information out there uh, to the world, to the community. Uh, I Also, just to be clear, I don't want to give the wrong impression that I'm struggling from anything and, and trying to co-op. I just, you know, just in personally with, with helping friends with, you know, personal choices and advancements in life, I, that's, that's where I kind of draw that inspiration from. But I think it applies certainly for mental health as well. Yeah, but I think it's, you know, what it's saying, it's okay if you are. It's just this thing where, um, you know, in this world that we live in, it's it's an ultra-competitive environment, and, you know, we're always striving to be better, and I think it's uh, it's okay for people to say, you know what, I'm not good right now, I need to take some time, and uh, CMHA is an organization that uh, we hope that people come and access and utilize the emergency-based services we have at the crisis center. Um, We've got maybe a if you're just looking for services and you want to get connected and you don't feel so socially isolated, um, we've got welcome desks pretty well set up uh, at many locations uh, within the city that I could chat more about as well. Yeah, I was just, that was going to be my next question. If people do find themselves uh, needing help, wanting to talk, wanting something, whether it's today, tomorrow, or any other day, uh, what resources are available for people? I think as an organization, we're, we're looking at access, and that seems to be such an important piece. So um, obviously, if you are in uh, immediate crisis, I mean, uh, I can't say, you know, you can access the ER, but we have our crisis center um, that is on Huron Street, close to Huron and Adelaide, and that is open 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Uh, what is also available, though, is if you're not in a crisis, there's still a walk-in info and brief support team that can provide you information about the organization and meet with you and work on a plan um, if you're needing that. Uh, we have our Queen's Ave. It's 534 Queen's Ave site. Again, there's walk-in uh, case management services available there. Uh, but for my team in particular, uh, what we've tried to do is we create a lot of programming and we run that in the community because people need things to stay well and, and be better and um, 
But what we've also done is uh, created these welcome centers. So we are at the Central Library Mondays and Wednesdays from 9.30 to 5. Uh, we are at the Bosswick, the new library there, uh, every Friday, 9.30 to 5. And we are at the Sherwood Library um, with London Inner Community Health Center uh, from on Thursdays from 2 to 5. And we got a little pilot running with uh, the King Social Work Program at the Beacock Library on uh, Wednesdays and Fridays, 9.30 to 5. And this is just a time for people to get information, uh, talk about some programs that we offer, and look at, you know, how we can uh, support maybe a greater social inclusion and greater awareness in mental health. Brent, I appreciate that information, and I certainly appreciate your time today. Thank you very much. All right. Thanks a lot, Devin. That's Brent Carr, Manager of Community Programs with the Centre for Addiction and Mental Health here in Middlesex. Uh, we need to pause. When we come back, we'll have more of London Live. This is Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs on 980 CFPL. My thanks to Murray Faulkner, Dave Gilmore, Joe Couto, Steve Cordes, uh, Lauren Ravone, Linda Stobo, and Brent Carr for coming on the show. Thanks to Kristen uh, Devo- Devino for his work on the program. Have a great day. Mike will be back with you tomorrow at 1 o'clock.